Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, a podcast by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Alison Clayman's new documentary, The Brink, about political consultant and former Trump administration chief strategist Steve Bannon. The film, a cinema verite chronicle of Bannon's global mission to spread extreme nationalism, tracks his moves through the 2018 American midterm elections and sheds light on his efforts to mobilize and unify far-right parties around the world. The Brink was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to The Brink, Ms. Clayman's filmography includes the documentary features Take Your Pills and 11816, and episodes of the documentary series Enhanced and Opdox. She was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary for her 2012 film, I Weiwei, Never Sorry. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Ms. Clayman spoke with director Christy Jacobson about filming The Brink. During their conversation, Ms. Clayman discusses her first meeting with Steve Bannon, the central idea that guided her through production and the edit, and why she declined the idea of a traditional sit-down interview. Hi, I'm, I'm Christy Jacobson, and this is Allison Clayman, the director of the extraordinary film you just saw. Um, and uh, I will, um, I'm gonna moderate the Q&A tonight. Um, and um, <clears throat> so you've, bo- you've all just seen um, Ali's most recent work. Um, you may have also seen her previous films that are multiple award-winning, and I'm just gonna cut to the chase. Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry. Um, <clears throat> the Hundred Years Show, Take Your Pills. And um, as executive producer, Ali um, was uh, part of the team that made Hooligan Sparrow and On Her Shoulders. So we are sitting with a woman who has accomplished a lot in, um, in a little amount of time thus far. Um, I think it's, um, I don't know. I, I watched the film last night um, and woke up to some pretty shocking news this morning that many of you might also have read about um, the mass murders in New Zealand and, and, and just felt like these two things are not unlinked. Um, and uh, I just feel really honored to be here tonight to talk about this film and how it came to be. Um, so on that note, um, let's talk about how it came to be. Um, you've made a film in which um, you had extraordinary access to uh, a man who has very much, you know, thought at least that he was controlling his his, his image in the public and um, designing it. So can you tell me a little bit about the origin of the film and um, specifically like what were your thoughts the first moment that you considered uh, making a film about Steve Bannon? 
Totally. Also, I wanted to thank Christy and thank the DGA and thank all of you guys for being here. And I'm such a proud DGA member. So this is really cool because I've been in the seats here and um, I'm just really happy to be here. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, in um, the summer of 2017, uh, Marie Therese Giergis, who's uh, my uh, co-producer on this film, uh, reached out to me and asked if I wanted to shoot a verite documentary about Steve Bannon. <laughs> the backstory is that she knew him from kind of a previous life. Uh, in the end of his days in the film industry, he organized uh, a group of investors and with their money bought a company called Wellspring, which is an art house distribution company. Uh, and he, he, he essentially kind of put Marie Trez in charge and he was her direct boss. So she worked closely with him. Um, this was again the early 2000s. They worked closely and she, uh, you know, had a mixed relationship with him. She uh, was appreciative of the opportunity. He also gave her really free reign to distribute, um, you know, all kinds of films that do not look like his films or what came to be his films. Um, but, you know, he was, uh, uh, also an unpleasant boss, and he, um, you know, he was a Republican, but this was before the Tea Party days and before his path down, you know, far-right extremism. And um, she lost touch with him until he joined the Trump campaign, and she basically had his information and reached out and sent him hate mail to say that he, she was, um, you know, sh she was very disappointed and she couldn't believe that he was part of this and so you know to her surprise he would write back and he was very polite and so it was around um, the summer of 2017 she just thought you know there's only so far that personal catharsis can you know go and maybe there's something I can do and I produce documentary films and so she asked him about doing a film and he said no several times she says that he said you know you'll destroy me <laughs> because he knew where she was coming from and then, you know, the fourth time he said, I'll do it. And she didn't think of anyone else but me, which is cool, <laughs> for the film. Um, and so in a way, I think there's something cosmic because I understood immediately when she asked me about it. To me, this felt like it was in my wheelhouse in terms of I understood what, you know, we didn't really have to, we didn't strategize much except it was like, I just understood the power of verite filmmaking, what it means to um, try to get access and watch someone over a long period of time and let them reveal themselves. Having done that with Ai Weiwei, never sorry, um, yeah. quite successfully. <laughs> and and you know I you know and of course the big thing that's different here is that um, you know I mean it was kind of so I didn't know Bannon personally, so the one the the I said yes kind of without question, and I said, except I have to meet him because I don't know what he's like at all. He was still in the White House at this time. Um, he probably saw the writing on the wall and he soon was leaving the White House. Um, and uh, when I first met with him, um, I just, except for what I thought of his policies and I knew this like impression of him in the public sphere, um, you know, I didn't even know what he would sound like or, you know, how he would move. And it was like the first 30 seconds with him, I was just like, oh, man, this is a good character and he's going to say some shit, you know, like it was just very clear in that sense. 
Um, and, you know, I think the problem was that there were, this is like what we say now, and again, we didn't really talk about it at the time, but there was something about his um, image in the popular imagination, which was my imagination because I didn't have any personal knowledge of him. You know, he was like an evil genius and the mastermind behind, you know, Trump. He was the, you know, he was on the cover of Time magazine as the great manipulator. Um, but there's something very powerful about that image. And clearly he reveled in it, you know, that he wasn't trying to dispel that myth or something, you know. And um, the reality of the human, you know, would, would, I was sure it would certainly be different, but I didn't know what it would be, maybe, you know, and I, and I wanted to see. And I think, um, for me, there was never a question of, you know, is his worldview one that has, that has, you know, that is on the side of, of righteousness, but the question of who he was, um, was, was one for me. And more importantly, who cares what's in his heart? What is he doing? Who is he working with? What can you expose by being in the room with him? What can you expose by following him, seeing who is paying for what he's doing? Or, you know, it, comparing the public versus the, you know, the, you know, what he says, his rhetoric versus what he does. So that was kind of what I th was excited about in terms of the opportunity. And can you talk a little bit about just, you know, I think, like, well, I just need to point out that I took notes while I was watching the film last night, and on two different occasions, at one time I wrote, I can't get enough. I don't want this to end. And, like, that's not ever how I would have thought I would have felt when watching a film um, that's, like, exclusively about Steve Bannon and, and his orbit. Um, and also, this feels like a fiction, a fiction film, um, and and I and I think that I think that documentaries are films and fiction films are films. I don't think that one is greater than the other or better than the other. But there was just it was after the Roy Moore um, defeat, and there were just like some shots and 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 just the way it was unfolding that felt almost scripted. Um, I know that it wasn't. I'm not suggesting that it was. Um, so I just wanted to talk about, and then I remembered, and many of us work in film here or in some capacity, that you were alone with the camera in that situation and have, and, and yet captured all of this um, in, in a way that, that you know, lent itself to be edited really beautifully um, and artfully crafted ultimately, obviously with score and all the rest, which I love. Um, but so I just wanted you to talk about just like, the 100% observational approach that you took. And, um, and also that, you know, many will often say, well, that's the fly on the wall. And it's not a fly on the wall, right? It's a filmmaker, a really smart filmmaker, um, who's, who's, who's capturing this. I know I feel the last like couple of weeks as we're gearing up for the release, I'm really feeling like I'm being called a fly a lot. <laughs> like, which, you know, I guess that's the style, but you're right. I mean, it's not just fly on the wall. Um, I think that, uh, I think in a way also emotionally, the fact that I was a one person crew, um, you know, while it presented difficulties, I also think it um, kind of helped me get through <laughs> who, 
who I was filming and what I was filming because it was like something to focus on. I, I directed a segment of this film called 11816 that was like a bunch of different directors all following one person during the 2016 election. Um, and I was filming Dave Davies, who's a reporter in, um, in uh, Philadelphia. And so I like experienced the election of Donald Trump kind of through the, you know, the screen of my camera. And, it, in, and that's like this mediated experience, you know, as it is when you're, you know, if anybody has that kind of experience. And, and it's in a way, it's like, you know, I, I fell apart when I came home. Because <laughs> right. that's personally, you know, I, I don't know if I was surprised, but I was upset. And, and um, you know, but the experience, you're kind of, because you're just thinking about the light and the framing and the sound and, you know, because running it all. And I do think that was kind of helpful and meditative in some ways while I frankly would describe, you know, filming with Bannon day in, day out because he also is kind of on a loop and I could finish his sentences on his sort of stump speech and the what he'd say to reporters. But because of where I personally come from with my politics, I felt like it was like having poison poured into my ear all the time. Um, but I was also like engaged in other ways, which was like I was trying to decide where to put the camera and you know what to film and thinking about how would this fit in a storyline and you kind of just treat every day like it's definitely going to be in the film and you're just always trying to figure out how is this going to be in the film even though there's hundreds of hours and it's you know a 90 minute kind of film um but you know when I, I guess, in terms of other parts of the question, it's it's not just fly on the wall. I think in the film you hear my voice more as it goes on. Um, that is both like representative of a relationship that evolved. I didn't say as much to him in the beginning. I was kind of getting my bearings. I didn't, you know, I didn't know him very well. He wasn't used to having me around. It also, I filmed for a long time before we had the release officially signed, so I also felt like I didn't really want to say a lot before I knew that we had the release signed. Um, but, you know, also the point of the movie was not, um, you know, can I get a point on Bannon or can I, like, you know, get, not even a gotcha, but it's not about my, like, it, the off-screen voice interaction with him. Anything that could be done by someone with him in front of my lens was better than me having to, to say it um, from off screen. But we had hours and hours long conversations by the end and I did have a lot of options of times where I thought I could show the kinds of things that I show I think when I do, when you do hear my voice, but um, you know, I, I kind of, I think it's very calibrated how you, how Can you, you feel Can you talk it. specifically about the choice? I mean, I, I think I know why you chose to put the scene, the the interaction about the pronunciation of the the Chinese names. But can you? I don't know. I mean, like, what could you? What were you experiencing in that moment? And then did, did you know? And then also the decision to use that and what what again? Because like, and I don't mean to um, insult the fly on the wall description because. It could be a fly on the wall. It's just a very smart fly. Is all I want to say, <laughs> yeah. um, and creative. Um, but um, but so also uh, filmmaking involves making lots of decisions, not just when you're in the field, which is to put yourself in the right position um, at the right time and 
it's also about the decisions that you make in the edit, which in this case was a very fast edit. Mm -hmm. And so the decision to include that and tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah, so what's funny is I think I was pretty spot on in the field about when I shot scenes that I was like, you know that feeling where you're like, oh, that's going in the movie. You know, I'm usually in general pretty right about that. And I think a lot of what I thought was my best material is what's in the film. I was usually kind of wrong about what I thought was my best interactions with him. Um, probably because that's not really, that isn't the kind of, the, you know, you often hear my voice in films, but it's usually by utility. And I think I'm a character through my authorship. Uh, you know, I think you can feel that, I, I know I can feel this is a movie that I made that no one else would have made, but it's not that I am a persona. And so I'm not really performing in that way when I'm interacting with him. I'm usually trying to see how I can get him to say more stuff and like, right. you know, come at him or say things in different ways and I'm not thinking about how I come off. So then it's like you you see it in the edit or your editors see it through their eyes and you know you start to realize, oh, I thought that was so great. And you're actually like, oh, it's, it's terrible. That's like not a good moment. Um, and so like the Wang Tishan pronunciation, that was like the kind of, we would have that conversation. Like, that wasn't like me being like, this is gonna be a funny scene. But um, when I had it, and I, again, that's the kind of thing I couldn't believe, like he's really gonna argue with me about this? Like, dude, like you don't, you know, the, the, the audacity or the cheekiness or, you know, the hubris that he, it was just, you know, there was so much wrapped in that, the idea that he's relying on, um, you know, also, I don't know for a fact, but I've been told by journalists that John Thornton doesn't speak Mandarin, even though he um, works a lot with China. But, you know, he, he, Bannon knows I speak Mandarin. He knows he doesn't, and he's terrible at languages, and that he's going to keep arguing and also show complete disdain for the idea of how Chinese people pronounce a Chinese name as well. Um, and so there was so much in there, and also I think it shows how he underestimated underestimates me or how he or he likes to pretend that he is or again who knows what he really thinks but that's how he chose to act repeatedly and repeatedly in that interaction um, but I actually just cut that for fun for myself and uh, it was over Thanksgiving I had some friends who were other Americans who had lived in Beijing at the same time as me and we had like a Friendsgiving dinner and I was just playing it for them because I thought it was funny and everybody loved it and I had this moment where I was like, you know, you don't want to look back and think one of your favorite things. Even though I was playing it to a crowd that would clearly think that was funny, I was like, I had the idea as I was building the section about Miles Kwok, and I knew that China is like something that's big on Bannon's agenda, but I was like, wait, maybe this is another way to show, to expose in a non-wonky way the thinness of his um, expertise and knowledge in this area. Um, and so I kind of tried it out and then it ended up working. And I do feel like, you know, yeah, sometimes in the edit, we, it, was, it was a very fast edit. Um, and I worked along with two editors um, and we kind of always were working on different parts of the film. And most things in the film were probably touched at some point by all of us. You know, maybe someone took the lead, but it would get passed off um, just to keep it fresh and to keep things moving and sometimes I could add something because it was like I knew the footage or I knew what I wanted to say, but like I couldn't build as spectacular of like the bones of a great montage or, you know, an editor who found a moment that I hadn't thought about and she saw it and I was like, wow, that's like like the Edgeware Road conversation, um, which was a select that one of my editors had pulled out early and I didn't necessarily remember that moment and I, you know, that's one of my favorite 
scenes in the film. Um, so yeah, so it was like super collaborative and we just kind of didn't have any time to waste. Um, and so everything in the film really had to like earn its place and, and fit in in like a whole storyline and kind of go through lots of people's eyes. And for a documentary that was shot over 13 months to be edited, well, you shot the final frame on election day 2018, November 6, 7, 8, something like that. Um, and the film premiered on like January something at Sundance and we're sitting here in like two weeks before its theatrical release. That's a, that is tight. Yeah, I, I wouldn't advise it, and I, d I don't want any, you know, financiers or distributors or anyone to get ideas that that's like, oh yeah, you just do that. And that's part of why there's two editors plus me. That's part of why there's two composers. Everything, I, I feel really great about, I don't think the film would have been any different. I think that we would have had less overages in finishing, um, and I think we all would have... Um, felt better like emotionally and like right. you know <laughs> um and and but I always knew that the edit that we were trying to finish it um in a timely manner because there was some urgency but never to compromise the quality of the film if that makes I mean obviously you can always say that but that was true I feel like if I was like this movie's garbage we can't put it out it wouldn't have been an issue but um I also think we have worked really smart, and part of that is because of how much responsibility we all felt, and for me, how much intention. Like, I came to the edit, not even that I was, like, better prepared than in the past, but, like, I everything was just super thought out because I think I, every day I was like, um, you know, you're making this movie. Why are you, Why are you making this movie? Like, are you doing what you're what you set out to do? People are going to come at you from all sides. You know, I think I would go to bed at night just imagining. Like now, I did like you know today was a press day, and it's like I probably was imagining the kinds of things I'd have to talk about at, at you know on days like this, like every night, because it really felt like a scary like you like if you do this wrong, you know. I mean, for me, it's like if you do this wrong, like the the right loves you and the left hates you, or the left hates you and the right hates you, or, I mean, there's, like, so many combinations of, um, you know, and reasons that people won't give the movie a shot is really what it is, you know, just because of who the subject is. Um, but I believe that what I was doing had value, but I had to prove it to myself every day, and it meant that I was like, there has to be a reason why every choices made it can't just be look how cool this access is like I got to film Bannon that was the number one thing this movie is not about being enamored of the access like I have something to say that is completely about what I observed not like I came in with a with a worldview um but I didn't come in with an idea of what the story is and then I you know made up right. things to right. to show that story you know the right. story revealed itself the story of most not great films. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, like, and 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 I felt like also it it should work out that way. I was pretty confident that as long as I had the access, as long as I was able to film real things, and he was, uh, you know, as long as I had enough material, there was a story there that would 
yeah, that would do what I had to do. I didn't have to do any like anything misleading or any tricks. And and back to one of your earlier questions, like the verite approach. I mean, at the we I, this is the first time I've ever done a film where there's no talking head like interviews or other interviews to contextualize. Like with Ai Weiwei, it was Verite and I did follow him, but I had a lot of other voices um, to talk about, you know, his backstory and the art world and China, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, this, I mean, I was like, who, it, what a minefield. How would you pick who's going to weigh in on this? I felt like it had to be, you know, an unmediated experience between the audience and the subject, except the mediation, the mediator was me, like through all of the choices I made, but I wasn't gonna, how do you pick who's gonna frame things? Um, and then, you know, we thought maybe kind of like, at the very, very beginning, kind of like uh, with Wiener as a model, you know, there was like that one key sit down interview that it seemed like was done at the end, you know? Um, yeah. And so we sort of like, if you look at you know the earliest budget, there was like a budget for like having something like that. And then it was like, we were talking all the time. And I was like, ugh. And I also saw how there was no value in encountering Bannon in an interview context. Like I felt like he does not sit down in good faith. He thrives in the, in the combat of it all, you know, there's, I just felt like there was that wasn't a place where there was anything revealing. And as the year went on, he did, you know, every long format interview under the sun. You know, Charlie Rose and uh, Fareed Zakaria. He, I mean, he just he was he just did so many things too. Where I was like, well, that's not people can find that elsewhere. And you know, when you're spending time with someone in their real life, things will happen. When you interview them in a setting in which you've seen them be interviewed in, no matter how brilliant or not you are you know it it it, it um seems like a rigged game um <clears throat> i want to open it up to the audience if there are questions i have like a million more i could ask but um i see a hand here and then a enthusiastic hand there so the question is about um access and whether at times um you were denied or more often you had open access and also about releases, I think most people could hear, so mm -hmm. you can grade me on my summaries later. It's a really good question because, you know, it's about the access to Bannon, but then to me the movie would only be interesting if he's talking to other people, and that is a daily negotiation. Um, a lot of times he was my greatest champion in telling people, oh, you should be in the movie. Um, <laughs> I was always, uh, you know, I was never misleading about who I was, although I think a lot of people when they encountered me were probably like, do you work for him? And that I mean, like, there's a lot of journalists that he works with, so they were always like, you know, who the fuck is this? <laughs> um, and when it comes to people who are on, you know, who are, you know, far right heads of state or whatever. Basically, if anyone ever asked me, my line was always, I'm an independent filmmaker. Uh, you know, I don't work for him. When he would introduce me, he would say, she's a documentary filmmaker. You know, she's doing a movie about populism and nationalism and the whole thing. You know, he never said, she's making a movie about me because I think he thought that would sound like, you know, like too, he was too full of himself. Um, and it was kind of true. The, my intention was to make a movie that's about things that are bigger. Um, so... Uh, what was great is that he would often encourage people to be in the movie, except people that he didn't want me to film. Like uh, one example is, 
Michael Wolf was around a lot. Uh, and this is after Fire and Fury, so, you know, I assume he's working on something new. And every time I would see him come, I would um, not be invited to join. Uh, and I would, you know, text Bannon directly and be like, it'd be really great for the movie if, you know, we got a scene like this or, you know, we'd be really good. And, you know, he would just not respond. Like, he made it clear when there were things that he didn't want me to film. Um, and I would say there's, like, different categories. There's things that he asked me to film with alacrity, which made it pretty clear that it was something that he thought would be good in the movie. Um, if it, you know, I wouldn't go out of my way to do it, but I, to me, it's like, you know, you don't have to use anything. So, you know, it's like I, I would film stuff that I, if I felt like it was performative for me, like, you know, I just don't use it. Um, there was stuff, like you said, where there's meetings where maybe there's like a sort of preamble that's you know neutered and then I'm sort of asked to leave and then they have the real conversation there's somewhere like the and I would say like the Miles Clock interaction was like that um, and I filmed them together a few times and every time it was like that I chose to put that in the film because I think that's kind of clear <laughs> and I think that it also shows that the you know I think it says a lot about um, brings up questions about what kind of relationship this is. And that was, you know, that's why I put it in. Not because I think that was like, a, you know, an intimate meeting. I think it was kind of a very stilted, strange one. And then it's an entry point to, to talk about other things. Um, the, when he meets with the, uh, the French uh, politicians from the National Rally Party, I think from, from my perspective, that was a real meeting. And then once they started to talk about financials, they asked me to leave and actually then was able to come back. Um, and, uh, you know, then there are some things like the dinner with all the different European leaders, which I uh, feel like was, an, uh, was a, an accomplishment to know about and get to film. And I filmed that from start to finish. And they were a lot of them were meeting each other for the first time, too. And I, that, that I felt like I didn't feel like my presence changed, you know. Again, this is all my estimation, but I feel like this is what I do for a living is wa film, watch things and film things and decide if I think it's bullshit or not. So, um, yeah, that... Uh, so I think there was, like, always a range. And then I would try to get people to sign releases. It really was just me in the field. And so sometimes I would try to get people to say it on camera or sign releases or... You know, especially in the U.S., like implied consent is, you know, our friend. And, you know, the, the I was never secretly filming. It was very, very clear that I was there. So, you know, so you kind of do your best. Um, and if anything, public figures, it's kind of more in your favor. Um, also, whenever we were in public spaces, that's in your favor. When you're in private spaces, it was like I had Bannon. I had a signed release from Bannon and I had his permission. Um, but it was tough and, like, you know, I feel like I get really um, territorial sometimes, too. And I had a hard time often with, you know, journalists who I'm like, you know, wanted to be like, don't worry. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, the, when I say don't worry, it's like, don't worry, I'm not part of, like, Bannon tricking you or something like that. <laughs> but on the other hand, everyone that came into the frame is, like, you know, part of the story. And I think Bannon's relationship with the media was something that was important to me to show and you know it's not about like just good guys and bad guys but it's like how how do you cover how do you cover of a, a movement that is interested in legitimizing itself and reaching more people through uh mainstream media is a big question I think it's a question that should be on the film as well and that's why 
I chose to make that part of the film and I was trying to include as many journalists and he spends a lot of his day is spent texting with reporters and giving interviews and he's feeding stories as much as he is, um, you know, uh, or sending your, or, and getting information from them as much as he is like being a source um, of, and you know, uh, that was something that was hard to do. <laughs> he often didn't let me film uh, interactions with certain press as well, um, you know, and I think it was about, he goes on the record and off the record a lot, um, and that's a big tool of his. Um, and I would try to talk to reporters outside of being with him to get a sense of what they thought of him too. Um, so, yeah. But the film is a testament in, in like, relation to that question of, um, of it's not about what you didn't get, it's about what you did get and what you did to get what you got um, in terms of not getting stuff. Uh, so, um, yeah, it seems like it was a, a mixture of both. Um, the one answer to both of those questions can be, does it matter? But, um, yes, he saw the film. Uh, my producer showed it to him, like an almost finished version before Sundance. Um, and from what I understand, yeah, I mean, my last interaction was him, with him was when I took the microphone off of him the night of the midterms. And then she kind of picked up the burden of subject relationship and management, which was really great for me. Um, so she showed him the film. And uh, as she says, you know, I think he was playing it a little bit close to the vest and, you know, he, I think it was a lot to see, uh, I think I've had that experience with other subjects, you know, it's a lot to see a long-term verite film, you know, completed and um, uh, I think there were things he was happier about and less happy about, but ultimately, you know, that it was a fair portrayal. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so too. <laughs> and then, um, but, the, that that communication with him continued uh, apace until the reviews started to come out. And at that point, he cut off all communication with her. Um, my interpretation of that uh, is that um, there, fortunately, there was a, a consensus in, in a lot of what's been written so far, knock on wood, that, you know, with a lot of things like he hung himself, you know, he, he there's not a lot of ideas there. You know, it's a critique of him that I don't think he's used to. It's not, he's evil, he's a racist, it's, he's kind of a joker. And um, what, I also believe that he's, he, you know, may try to put out, you know, I think the best thing he could do is to pretend he doesn't care or to say he likes it, but I think that this initial reaction kind of, um, knowing him now, I mean, it, I think it says a lot, and, and uh, that's why I say ultimately, though, and it took me a long time to come to this, because when you make documentaries, what your subjects think of it means a lot, and I'm very proud that I have a, you know, a, lot of, a track record of subjects who feel like they were treated fairly. This was one, though, where if he really liked the movie, I would feel really mixed, because he, he you know, likes to boast that he is going to use things. But I, I feel like, A, I am very confident I am not his tool, and this is my movie. Um, and so to that extent, I really had to come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter what he thinks. And I don't mean it doesn't matter if he's upset. I mean it doesn't matter if he later <laughs> says whatever he's going to say. 
I think for me, this is this is my movie, and I know what it's communicating. You know, it, it it it's in the eye of the beholder, but to a lot of audiences already, I feel like I have been understood and heard, and and I also think it's very fair. So I'm a little bit like, who cares what he thinks? Um, and does he have a conscience? That is really like, I don't know what's in his heart. Uh, he doesn't act. He doesn't act like he does though. So the question is about our first meeting and what we discussed and if there were any ground rules imposed. So the first meeting was with my producer who again, they you know had a, a pre-existing relationship. Um, and he walked in, we waited for hours. This is now I know like totally typical <laughs> of even when I was filming, but yeah, and I didn't have a camera, you're right. Um, and he walked in and immediately just talking, talking, talking. And he had just wrapped, I think the day before, like two days of uh, interviews with Charlie Rose for 60 Minutes. That was really his first TV interview. Um, and I, what my impression I remember, because he was telling us about it, you know, I was like, wow, I think he kept saying, oh, I prepped for days and then da, da, da. And I was like, I think he's just like still running off the fumes of like, he was like prepping and he just like wants to say everything that he like didn't get to say in the interview. Cause he just talked nonstop. He's constantly changing the topic. I mean, in that sense, I was a little bit, i I immediately, for my part, I kind of clocked him as a formidable opponent in the sense that I was like, man, he's just gonna, th you know, I, I couldn't, you know, fact check in the moment all these things he was saying. And I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna wait a while before like we engage in this manner. Um, but I found him to be, again, like a good character. Uh, Cause in the sense of like, is there a movie to be made here? That's kind of what was on my mind. Um, I tried to say, my game plan was to say as little as possible and to reveal as little as possible about myself, um, not in a deceptive way, but just in a like, you know, you're being deposed and it's like, make them get stuff out of you, but like, don't offer any information. Um, but my producer is very upfront with him, you know, and said things that, you know, she would tell him, you know, you're what you're doing is terrible and you're going to hell and this is crazy. And, and I was kind of shocked and it was also kind of relieving because that, that kind of set the tone. It's like, I'm not here undercover. Um, and she introduced me and said, you know, she's a great film. Blah, blah. You know, she like said things, good things about me. And she was like, and she's, you know, she's Jewish. Her grandparents are Holocaust survivors. She's like, you know, totally, you know, like, like it was on the table who we were, but we're here, we're gonna make a fair movie. That was what was always promised. We're gonna make, a, the movie's not cheap shots, it's gonna be fair, but it's like probably gonna be critical. <laughs> um, and what we were banking on is, and she did even say this to him a few times, it might be critical in ways you're not used to or you might not expect. That really was on the, I don't know if we said all of those things in the first meeting, but that was 100% down to the, you know, the end, things that were being communicated. Um, but I just remember being horrified when she would say things like this, you know, I don't remember the specifics, but she would be arguing about something, maybe about, you know, the, the Muslim ban. She's Arab American. She's not Muslim, but she, you know, she, she feels an allegiance in, in that sense. I mean, as I think we all do as, you know, whether you're Muslim or not, you can be upset about the, the travel ban, but she was saying something and she was like, right, Allison. And I was so mad at her. I was like, why don't, don't drag me in because, because, you know, they had, there was a trust there, but I, you know, I was, it's, and it's not that he would say, I won't work with you, but it's like, you know, I'm trying to, I have a style. And, you know, my game plan and through the whole time was like, 
you know, to be myself, but to not overshare wherever possible. Um, so that was kind of how that meeting went. And he was very also impressed. Another thing was saying, you know, never sorry. And, you know, China's very important to him. And, you know, she speaks Mandarin. And, you know, it was just kind of trying to, to make him interested. But I would say, like, it wasn't like after that first meeting. It did take months to, like, negotiate the formal release. Um, but a few weeks later, I started filming. And it was sort of under, like, a provisional agreement, which was, like, released to be negotiated, but we know you're filming a movie kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, I genuinely went in without, you know, an opinion of him to change because I didn't know him. I really only knew him from Twitter or the cover of Time Magazine, which I don't really think of as knowing a person. Um, I don't think that my political view of the world changed during this time just like his didn't change by meeting me and talking to me. I mean, to be perfectly honest. Um, but I would say my opinion of him changed because it was like going from, you know, an empty, a blank slate to having an opinion. Um, and for me, I think portraying someone as a, you know, and I have used the term, you know, someone more, more 360 degrees, you know, showing someone as having a full personality um, I, it was important to not be afraid of that, and I actually thought if I was trying to not show him in lighthearted moments, in moments that some people find likable, charming, seeing other people being charmed by him, that that you had to not be afraid of of showing that, even if you disagree with what he uh, does or says or who he works with, um, because. I think then you're susceptible to the, you know, two things. You're susceptible to the criticism that you're, you know, keeping things out. And of course, you, you know, it's a 90-minute film, and it's a, it's a distillation of my experience of him over 13 months and many, many days of shooting and hundreds of hours of footage. Um, but you know, it was important to be okay with showing someone that it's not just a hit list, uh, you know, like a. Uh, greatest hits of things you disagree with or things that you agree with. I mean, either one of those would be a, a limited film. Um, but also because, you know, to me, people who, and again, I'm a filmmaker with, a, with, an, with opinions and a political view. I mean, people who um, perpetuate, uh, you know, who do bad things, people who, um, don't mind perpetuating hate speech, people who don't mind policies that are discriminatory and, and racist and Islamophobic. And, you know, they aren't necessarily spitting fire 24 hours a day. And I think that if that's what, and for me, it's like if that's what you think is what a bad person is, you might be missing some bad people around you if that's what you think they're gonna look like. And in that way, my, my mission was not to redeem Bannon or redeem a vision of, you know, it, it, again, it was really to figure out who he was and when I saw that there were, that there were gonna be things that people can laugh with him, not, you know, it's not about laughing at him, I think he has a good uh, self-deprecating sense of humor. He's a fascinating mix of having self-awareness and also not having self-awareness and that was, continually surprising to me as that would reveal itself. But, um, you know, I just think that that is the more powerful warning as well as the more accurate portrayal of, of this person. 
and and I think that that's part of um, that's one of the you know tools in his kit is like you know and a lot of journalists talk about you know you know they really that, that they like him or they you know I mean that that is something that's important to recognize you don't have to like take away any 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 good thing that you see in a person in order to have a portrayal where you are still critical of their actions. I think we have time for one more question, if there is one. Um, thank you, everyone, and thank you to Allie. Yay. Um, and, and the film is coming out in theaters on March 29th. Yeah, March 29th share, at IFC is there, Center. Is there a hashtag or... The Brink um, Film is its handle, but yeah, March 29th, okay. IFC Center, also in LA and DC, and then it rolls out. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from the DGA's documentary series screenings, check out episode 167, which features director Alison Chernick discussing her documentary, It's Chak, with director Robert Whitey. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.